At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Will Staples. Will Staples is the kind of conversation that I want to have more often on this podcast. He's a screenwriter. He's a producer. He's best known for his work on video games like Call of Duty and Modern Warfare 3. He wrote it. Uh, he wrote the television series The Right Stuff. And he's created this novel called Animals in which it's quasi-fiction but it really is all about animal trafficking. And so I wanted to have him on because he just is, he's just the kind of guy that you want to have a conversation with. He's, you know, he, he name drops with Ben Affleck and Leonardo DiCaprio and all sorts of guys. But the guy just has a, a perspective on animal trafficking and what it means for quote-unquote his perspective on hunting that I wanted to explore. Hold on to your seats because it's an incredible conversation. Okay, so typically when we have someone like you, dare I say of your caliber, <laughs> on the podcast, I'd like to ask the question, do you hunt? And I actually do not know the answer to this question, Will. So do you hunt, Will? I do not hunt. Um, when I was a kid, I went along on a few uh, quail hunts, um, but that was my only direct exposure. I shoot a lot, but I don't hunt. Would you consider yourself a... So we, we, we cl typically classify people as hunters, non-hunters, and anti-hunters. Would you classify yourself as a... I would characterize myself probably definitely... Non-hunter is probably where I'd land. 
probably leaning a little bit anti-hunter, but not like, I guess I've been studying the animal issue long enough to know that we're all sort of living in glass houses a little bit with this stuff. It's like, you may be a vegan, but you fly on private planes and you use plastic bottles. And like, there are all the sorts of different distinctions. I guess like, for me, it's just not really an impulse uh, that I have or something I find myself drawn to. But, you know, it's like I have a hamburger. So who am I to, you know, judge somebody, you know, for doing that? So, well, I had a sneaky suspicion. That's where you you were landing. That's why I had the, the, the questions teed up, um, because you are exactly the kind of person we need to talk to. All right. The exactly the kind of person whose narrative, whose perspective we need to hear from. Because as you hear, as you as you just said, we almost live in echo chambers or little glass houses that we just, you know, don't throw rocks at the windows because it's gonna break and people are gonna find out what we do, you know? Yeah, it was funny. I was actually invited after I wrote the book, somebody reached out who had loved animals and had been really moved by it and said you know, I'd love to have you on my vegan podcast. And I was like, I'd, I'd love to come on and talk to you guys, but you should just know I'm like, I don't eat a ton of meat, but I'm not a vegan. And uh, they were like, oh, you don't share our values. So you, we can't really speak with you. And I'm like, well, there's a, there's a lot to talk about besides whether I pass a purity test for this right. thing, you know? And I mean, obviously like I have a ton of friends who hunt and, you know, I don't like wag my finger at them whenever we hang out or anything like that. Well, isn't that just a, a symptom of society today that people like, Oh no, you're not with us. So I can't speak with you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the tribalism I find to be pretty perilous for modern society. And it's like, oddly, it's like these news stories about Ukraine. It's sort of like everybody, no matter what side people are on, they're all like, Oh, this is like super messed up. What's going on over there. And and we sort of can all view something like that through the same lens. But so many of these other issues, you just sort of have to pick your team and that's where you are. I mean, it's like on a plane yesterday and somebody was asking me where I fall in the mask debate. And I was like, whatever the rules are, that's what I do. So if I'm on a plane, I'm wearing one. And if I'm in a store where I don't need to, I don't. But like, it's not like a, an identity thing for me. Sure, sure, sure. No, it's, it's, it's funny how, you know, you can have similar values. You just, you know, potentially come to the solution in different ways. I've always said that vegans and hunters actually want the same thing. And you are almost back to back in that thing that you want, which is healthy wildlife. Let's yeah. just be overly simplistic about it. Yeah. Oh, healthy wildlife. But we just have different tools in how we achieve healthy wildlife. Um, and, you know, we have common values. We just, again, speak different languages and believe different things. But discourse between those two groups uh, is certainly valuable. Yeah. And I think it's, it's very convenient to like draw these sorts of things in absolutes. And, you know, for example, there are certain creatures where uh, the only way for it to be economically viable to preserve their habitats is hunting. It's like, you know, like certain areas of forest elephants, like they're just terrible for tourism. Like you're not going to, people aren't going to travel, then go travel through the jungle and have a 90% chance of not seeing a forest elephant. So hunting concessions end up providing habitats for forest elephants. And so it's like, I'm an anti-hunting guy, kind of, but I'm also at the same time, like, I don't know, like, do I want to live in a world without forest elephants or do I want to live in a world where forest elephants are hunted? If those are the only two choices that are realistically being presented to us, but then I'm like, okay, well, you know, 
if that same, if some alien race came down to earth, it was like, we'll keep you guys around, but only if we hunt you guys, sometimes we'll let you have your habitat. I'm like, well, I wouldn't want that either. But then there are all sorts of other ways where we don't necessarily draw a clean comparison between humans and animals. So does that analogy hold or not hold? And I guess it all just sort of comes down to personal values and judgments. And I mean, I, the, the theme of the book uh, that I wrote was really that everybody has to draw a line or the lines get drawn for us. And my goal with the book is that people would come out of it at least being conscious of their decisions. So if your decision is like, my line is that I'm a hunter and that's how I contribute to the environment and, you know, that's how I express my values, then fine. And if you're an anti-hunting person and you express your values differently, then draw your own line. But mm -hmm. it's, there's no one size fits all solution for everybody. That I don't think anybody's identified that one. Mm -hmm. Well, we're five minutes in. We haven't even introduced you, which I do a terrible job every time because we just get rolling. Will Staples, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. Dang, man. Will Staples. Uh, can you introduce yourself to those who may not be familiar with who you are? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm a, a writer and producer. Um, I do uh, video games, books, movies, TV, in terms of some of the work I've done in the video game world. I uh, wrote Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3, one of the for Speed games, some Rainbow Six, things like that. Um, I've you know created the Right Stuff uh, series at Nat Geo. I've worked on Shooter. I was working on Jack Ryan from 6 to 9 a.m. this morning. Um, we've got a few shows in the mix right now. And then uh, work on movies as well. Like I uh, was one of the writers on Without Remorse. I worked on the Mission Impossible franchise, stuff like that. And then um, I guess the, what, the reason we're here today is because uh, I guess a, a year ago now, I wrote a book about animal trafficking, which is one of the largest illicit markets in the world that somehow nobody knows anything about. I mean, the reason for that is that um, it's not a law enforcement priority. So it's like, if you look at the largest illicit markets in the world, you've got drugs, right. guns, humans animals well drugs guns and humans uh are things that we invest law enforcement dollars in so we know how they're trafficked yet with animal trafficking you know when i was working on that it's like nobody knows nobody ever thinks about the fact that like animals are being killed in places like africa and southeast asia and then ending up in markets in the united states and like china and those are like thousands of miles apart and huge cultural divides as well mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so i just investigated that and then had but you blended it into fiction, right? It's a it's a fiction book. But, yeah, so I was like, you know, if but, I yes, but you know, if to our earlier conversation, I was like, you know, if I write a book about animal trafficking as a nonfiction book, I'm selling it to the echo chamber, right? Like, it's like, okay, a bunch of people who care about animals are going to read it and be like, yeah, this is messed up. Like, we got to do something, and you know, I get all the clicktivists like, you know, mm -hmm. congratulating themselves for supporting something they already supported. You know, whereas I was like, clicktivist. Gosh, I've never heard that before. Holy smokes! Like, click and that look. Hunters could be clicktivists too. You know. Yeah, and I was like, you know what? So you know, I, I figured, you know, my toolkit. I'm like, what I would like to think that I'm good at is hiding the peas and the mashed potatoes, right? It's like I can write something that will, you know, it's like, you know, if you write a Call of Duty game, it's 30 million people. You know, if it's without remorse, it's like, you know, millions of people watching that too. And then within that, you can layer in some things that maybe people weren't thinking about. Uh, before they went into it. So I was like, I'm going to write a bare knuckle, visceral uh, crime fiction story set in the world of animal trafficking. It's going to talk about, uh, you know, animals, veganism. I've got a section on hunting, everything. And I'm not going to, you know, my view is that the job of art is to ask questions, not answer them. So I was like, I'm going to lay out all the questions I think are interesting. I'm going to lay out why I think they're interesting. 
And then if people want to take something away from that information, great. So it's like my section on hunting was our conversation earlier about the forest elephants. It was just, hey, look, here's the deal. Like if you go into this place, this is the only way these animals are going to live. So you're either down with that or you're not down with that. And so did you um, get to go and uh, did you go on site for any of this stuff or did you just almost like keyboard warrior and then? Yeah. So I have a bit of a reputation for going a little far down the rabbit hole, like farther than anybody else in my line of work in Hollywood. So, um, like, you know, so I do a lot of like, like with, you know, part of the reason I get hired on so much military stuff is because like, you know, I, I spend a lot of time with folks in that field and like learn all that stuff. But so for this one, um, I spent a month on the road in seven different countries, um, investigating firsthand. Cause I was like, I need, I don't want to write some like Hollywood bullshit. I want, if I'm going to write about an issue, I need to expose it in a real way. So, um, let's see. So, you know, if you look at any illicit market as having the production, distribution and consumption side, right? So like right. Drugs, that's like Bolivia, the drugs go for distribution in places like Mexico and then end up here in LA. And, right. uh, you know, with animals, everybody knows that production in the form of, you know, killing elephants and tigers and shit like that happens in these places and consumption happens in these places but nobody looks at where dist distribution happens almost every other illicit market the big story is distribution you know with animals nobody knows how animals are trafficked like how do poor africans you know running around with a makeshift rifle killing a rhino how does that horn five days later end up in hanoi right so, um uh, i pieced together a. Uh, 30 day research uh, journey. And first I conducted about a hundred interviews on the phone with like everyone from like CIA, Homeland Security, um, every major wildlife organization, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, from there went on the road, uh, was in, did uh, anti-poaching, like went along an anti-poaching and intelligence gathering operations in South Africa and Mozambique. Um, went to the Golden Triangle region to Laos, Northern Thailand, a warlord controlled area of Myanmar where journalists are not allowed. Um, and uh, to an area of Hanoi where the, um, the horn syndicate operates. Um, that's like sh the public is shut out of had cover stories everywhere. I went, um, I would buy samples um, to have them then sent to a lab in Pretoria for DNA testing to make sure that, you know, cause I didn't want to be like, the asshole oh, oh. went and bought a bunch of water buffalo and was like, guys, I got rhino horn. And everybody's like, you got suckered. Like, you know, everybody can go and buy water buffalo and a rug that looks like a tiger skin. Um, you know, so like I ended up like, it's like tiger banquets and things like that. And then smuggling the meat out and having the meat tested to see whether the cats were purebred, wild, whatever. And so um, in the book, everything is real and all the characters are based on people I met. You know, I also spent time with like the Triad Bureau in Hong Kong and the Narcotics Bureau there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then but you weren't joking that you went down a freaking rabbit hole. No, man, I got like holy smokes! I got, I got arrested and detained and shit. Like it was, I you know, drink. I'm, I was like drinking Tiger wine in Myanmar. Whole deal. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, and uh, so it got super sketchy a few times. Um, and then, you know, and then wrote the book. And then the other thing I was concerned about is I didn't want anybody, I didn't want to get the old, like, Hey, you're just trying to profit off the animals. Like everybody else, like you're just some like tourist doing this stuff. So, you know, every penny that I made from the book goes to nonprofits supporting animals, like international anti-poaching foundation, Jane Goodall Institute, 
et cetera. Awesome. Anybody's spreading awareness. You know, there's mm-hmm. no agenda with it. Just like, I was like, I just wanted to keep it clean. So awareness and money for the animals. And, and I'm, I can go back to writing my like horrible things that are corrupting America's youth. Uh, <laughs> good job. So what, what, I, I guess, that, I mean, there are a couple of things that I want to explore, maybe some rabbit holes that I want to go down. Why did this, why did you like take on this passion? Like you, you that it's not the world that you live, right? You live in this, this gaming storytelling world, but all of a sudden now you're in, you know, wildlife trade trafficking. That's like, yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's pretty, uh, unusual the root on this one it's kind of a funny story so i had been hired by ben affleck to write a mercenary story set in eastern congo because he that's his philanthropic issues eastern congo and he was like let's let's do a big like sort of unforgiven neo-western set in eastern congo um and so i got hired to write that and while i was working on it i was at the shooting range with some navy seal buddies and there was this aussie dude there in like shorts and flip-flops like covered in tattoos and we're like, that guy's the most dangerous dude here for sure. And so I uh, ended up striking up a conversation with him. Um, that was Damian Mander, who founded the International Anti-Poaching Foundation. No shit. Yeah. I've got an email. Like, Damian and I have been playing email tag and text tag for the last two months. Okay, so Damian and I became best friends. My son's named after him. And uh, so he ended up, after he was like staying at like a hostel on Hollywood Boulevard or something for that trip. So he was starting out and trying not to waste money on accommodations. I was like, yeah, just come crash with me. I'm like writing this movie. We'll hang out. And so uh, while I was there, he had heard that Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hardy and Tobey Maguire were looking to do a story about animal trafficking. And because Damien was passionate about it, he said, Hey, you know, can I, do you, do you know any people in their world so that I can be helpful? I'm not looking for money or, or recognition. I just want to make sure that, you know, they get it right if they're looking to do it. And so I introduced some people in uh, DiCaprio's world and turned out they didn't have a writer yet on the movie. So next thing I know, I was getting a call. I was like, hey, would you would you write this thing? And so it became one of these like, sort of circular references. So I started working on that movie. And then, you know, as happens with movies in Hollywood, like, you know, things where you write it. And then there's the question of when are people's schedules going to align? How's it all going to come together, et cetera? So I was like, look, we're sitting on all this crazy firsthand research. And mm-hmm. it's one of those issues where, like, once you look at it, it's hard to look away. You know, was, was like, that part of the hundred calls and all yeah, that kind so of that stuff that you were making? Was, okay, okay, okay. And then I was like, we can't have, and everybody loved the script. And so I was like, we can't, this is too important to just have like seven people give me an attaboy that I like did a great job on the writing of the movie. And, and it gets stuck on the shelf and you it never know. It doesn't. And so I was like, right. I want to concurrently write the book. Um, and I got to know Jane Goodall at that point. Um, and so wrote the book. Jane read it right away, loved it. Um, sent it to Schwarzenegger, who's like offices down the block from me. And he, uh, he liked the book enough to endorse it as well. Um, and, you know, then it was sort of off to the, off to the races. So uh, it was, you know, a fun process. I mean, I think we're still probably going to, I think we're probably going to end up turning it into a TV show like Narcos, like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I still believe that like, if you can make people who don't care about these things feel something, you know, through the art, then that's how I think you, you can affect change. Um, you know, I think if I'm, if you're sort of like sanctimonious and, you know, telling people what to do, then I, I think it's just like, we're all just going to end up, you know, in the same, to your point in our corners. In conversations that you've had about the book post, you writing it to people that may not be 
familiar with hunting, let's say this, or trafficking, how often do people cross the two? Like the poaching, trafficking, and hunting. Have you, have you, uh, the reason I say that is we, I have to constantly define the difference. Yeah. Between poaching and hunting. Yeah. Well, I think also there are some, I think the right and the left have some major misconceptions about what is really going on with the issue. So like, be just being totally blunt, I think on the, the left, the big problem is that everybody's like, this is a cultural difference that in these cultures, they believe that these things have magical healing powers. Right. And who are we as Westerners to judge that? And it's like, well, it's been outlawed in traditional Chinese medicine for years. It's not mm-hmm. part of their culture. Mm-hmm. And people driving the marketing of these products are organized crime syndicates that are also engaged in human trafficking, amphetamine trafficking, et cetera, et cetera. Like these are bad, bad mofos. Like mm-hmm. Yao Wei, who's one of the top traffickers, has a casino I went to in Laos in this like little area that's completely contained on an island. It's like going to the place and like enter the dragon or something. And it's like, you can go and get like a tiger banquet and there's underage girls and there's like, everything is on the menu, right? And it's catering to triads, right? And similarly in Myanmar, it's like, it's being run by, you know, Say Lin, who was the top opium trafficker in the Golden Triangle until the US came in and put pressure on him to shut down his opium operations. So he switched to amphetamines and casinos. And at those casinos, he's also serving and trafficking and pangolins and all these things. And so, you know, it's not a cultural difference. Like this is about organized crime and like bad people doing bad things. And I think on the right, there's this fantasy that poachers are these like awesome, ruthless, uh, you know, adversaries, you know, running around with a knife in their teeth and an eye patch, you know, and a machine gun doing all this stuff. And there's this like, you know, everybody's like posting on social media themselves going over and they're like cryptic camo to Africa on their human hunting trip to like deliver like justice to these people. And like, certainly there are some poachers that are like that. Like you look at like the LRA operating in Uganda and places like that. So yeah, these are like warlords militias who are out there like killing animals, you know, but mm-hmm. what I saw the, the poachers I encountered were like the, Bolivian farmers growing coca leaves, right? Right. Like, right. You know, like, go to Bolivia and kill a bunch of farmers to stop the drug war, right? Like these are people who are just like, I'm growing some stuff. Like I don't know where it goes. And so these poachers, it's like, you know, you meet these people in Mozambique and it's like, there's some kid who's 18 and um, those shoes, Teddy, their people have been hunting these animals for 10,000 years. All of a sudden we come in and we say, you're not allowed to hunt these animals anymore, or you're going to go to prison for a minimum of 12 years. But right down the road, there's a Western hunting concession that has a deal with the government and a Russian billionaire can go and pay $70,000 and kill that same animal that's your birthright and that you would go to jail for killing. And the crime bosses don't want to go to jail. So what they do is they rent out the guns to these kids and they basically say, you can take this gun and uh, when you come back, you owe me $250 for the rental, right? Well, so I'm a kid who's 18 I'm, you know, and I know that there's $10,000 walking around on a rhino in Mm -hmm. Kruger, a mile away, kilometers, I guess we'd say, Mm -hmm. you know, like, 
you know, I'm going to go over there. And now I know if I don't pay, if I don't get that horn, I'm out 250 bucks to organized crime in my village. I'm mm -hmm. like, fucked. And so, you know, these guys will do whatever it takes to make sure they get that horn to get that $10,000 so they can pay off the, the gun rental and provide for their family by killing that very thing they've been killing for 10,000 years. And so it's like, you know, it was really tragic. Like I was there when we arrested these three teenage kids. None of them had ever shot a gun before in his life. And they were all looking at 12 years minimum. And like, we like ended up talking to the village elders, the Induna and trying to get them to be like, look, like your kids are in bad shape right now. If you guys give up, you know, I'm not the one doing the negotiation. I'm just like, they're the right observing, but the people I'm with are like, if you, if you guys will give up the local crime boss who is supplying the weapons, we can let your kids go. Otherwise they're each doing over 12 years. And so it became this like debate, like the village elders, like, do we roll on the syndicate leader? Who's like the only, who's like the Robin hood of our town. Mm -hmm. Let our own sons go to jail. Mm -hmm. And all of this is about killing something we've been killing for 10,000 years in harmony. And it wasn't until like you people came, like we've been hunting for the pot forever. And it wasn't until you people came along and started killing all these things. We ran out of them. And so well, I, the know, funny thing, yeah, it's, it's, you bring up a really good point. And did you notice, because here's my, my pushback would be this, the, the birthright to hunt and being able to take animals is one thing. But to go and take like specific animals, rhinos, lions, and more meat than they could use to sustain themselves to, to make money is a different animal to itself. Would you agree or not agree? Yeah, I think it's like war. I think, you know, there's an instinct to reduce the reasons that people engage in warfare to fairly singular noble things. And I think some people are patriotic and some people are looking for an adventure and some people are sociopaths. And, you know, it's like people do, I think with hunting, it's the same thing. It's like, well, I was in um, Mozambique, like they, they, where were you in Mozambique? What's that? Where were you in Mozambique? Uh, right. We were near Mossenjir. Um, uh, we were pretty deep in there. Uh, it was where uh, a lot of the tra the syndicates are based out of to hop over into Kruger. Um, okay. Okay. And so basically, yeah, they like they're ba they they post up and they're, they're based in Mossenjir. And it's like, oh, you, you you drive through the town. There's a bunch of mud huts, and then there's like a giant cinder block mansion with like. Range Rovers and cop cars parked outside. You're like, oh, that's where the syndicate is. You know what I mean? And so, you know, again, these aren't like the best kept secrets, but it's like nobody's going in there. It's like, you know, I was with Damien for that leg of the trip. It's like we drove like eight hours down this dirt road to this place where it's like people aren't going. Like no cops are going there. You know, at least cops aren't on the payroll. You know, mm -hmm. and so even just going there was like super sketchy. Like, you know, we had to have like, you know, it's like it was – you get asked a lot of questions and you had to be pretty smooth about how to get out of them. And um, so everywhere I went before I went always had a cover story developed that I knew could hold water. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, with the hunting thing, like in Mozambique, when we were there, the, the hunting concession that we were at was, was basically shut down for the season because they have a quota from the government. Right. Kill. And apparently a Russian billionaire had come and uh, it said, you know, I want to see the list and I want to kill everything on the list. And so the mm -hmm. dude was just there with like a dozen hookers hanging out at this like first grade hunting concession, just killing everything on the list. And they, there was no, they didn't see any lions. So, you know, I sort of was like asking the guys, I was like, so how do you make a lion suddenly magically appear if there's no lion on the property and the guy's demanding to kill the one lion you can kill still this season? And they were like, well, you know, like between us, we like 
went over to the, because it abuts Kruger Park. They were like, we cut a hole in the fence, tied a donkey to a tree. And then the dude hung out with a, with a rifle until a lion wandered over to eat the donkey. And then he killed it. And that was, and then we were done for the season. And then you're like, like, I think, I mean, I'm definitely against that kind of hunting. Where you're well, like, and I think, and I think a lot of people listening to this would be like, "Holy smokes, man! That's that's not the hunting we like to do. Yeah, that's not the hunting so, that is. Yeah, unfortunately, that's the bad apple that gives us all a bad name. Unfortunately, yeah. And I think it's like you know, it's like you know, I, I do a lot of stuff in Alaska, and I'm working with an Inuit tribe on a project right now, and it's like you know, obviously they subsist exclusively off like you know, seal and things like that. And that's just, you know, the deal, like you eat moose and everything. And so, um, you know, there's so many faces to hunting and, you know, at least in my opinion, you're the expert, but like, it seems like among them, you have people who are hunting for the pot, people who are sure. hunting to feel big, people who are hunting to feel some connection to nature. It's like, sure. there's so many faces to it. And like, you know, anyways. No, no, you're right. There's, and, and you know, it, it's almost in any industry you have, the bad apples, you have the the machismo kind of people, the people who want to do it for the right reasons, the people that are doing it for adventure. And it's difficult, especially in hunting, especially when it's, it involves killing something to, for the people that are doing it for the right reasons, for the people who understand the benefits and the consequences of the action to defend an individual like what you've just said who cuts a hole in the fence, ties something so that they can just come and shoot it. You yeah. know, it's, it's very difficult for us. It's, it's almost like at that point you have to, you almost have to divorce yourself, which is difficult here, especially from a societal perspective and a, a social value perspective. You have to divorce yourself away from the motivation of the individual because I, I don't know this concession, but I can only assume that they had anti-poaching in the concession oh. that, you know, they had animals that they were trying to protect. They were trying to increase their population because it's an economic asset. This Russian billionaire paid a lot of money that went was funneled right back into the benefits and the consequences of wildlife conservation of the area. The ethos of which was not right, but, and that's the, that's the crux of the matter is the, but right. Yeah, like I someone's going to say, like to you, area, you're a, you drive outside the hunting concession there, and it's red dust as far as the eye can see. Like there, nothing's growing there. It's like you might maybe a rat or a snake, but like, and you go in the concession, and there is megafauna. So I think it, like, it really just, you know, like you know, Mozambique, all that stuff was completely gone. Mm -hmm. You know, and now like the hunting concessions have have provided a fair amount of space. There's you know more parks and things like that, but and I think that's where it's really, I think morals and values don't have to be absolute in that. Like, I think people need to just sort of like search within themselves and say, what do I think about this? It's like, let's at least, at least make an informed judgment. I think for some people, they might be like, you know what? I don't know. It's like, I find it distasteful, but at least, at least you're informed. You know what I mean? But I think your point. Absolutely. Right, yeah. There was a guy, there's a guy in the UK. He's a, he's a, he's a very well-known journalist environmental activist his name's george monbiot and he um abhors hunting hates it yeah however he just came out and said look i hate hunting i abhor hunting i abhor trophy hunting but the evidence of what it does for wildlife conservation in africa cannot be denied and it was almost like this 
holy smokes, this guy, it was almost, he he disengaged himself from the emotional side of the distastefulness that he saw in the activity. He said, well, here's the evidence. Here's what the science is showing. This is what conservation is. This is what hunting is doing for conservation. There is no model right now, unfortunately, to replace what hunting, to your point in the forest elephants example that you gave, for vast, vast tracts in Africa. For like, how do you put value on the animals so that they survive, flourish, sustain, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, I'd love to live in a fantasy world where, you know, there's there's land for humans and land for animals and the animals get to live, you know, unharassed by human beings and the human beings, like, deal with their stuff and whatever. But I'd also like to live in a world without war where we don't spend any money on, like, defense and we spend it all on other things. And it's like neither of those are the world that we live in. And so I think it's like, I think it's really important that we examine and debate these things. And, um, you know, I think hopefully what you're taking away from my views is that like, I have probably more questions than I have answers. Like, I don't, I don't have anything I'm selling. I'm all I'm selling to anybody is like, here's information that you probably don't know. And here's, mm-hmm. you know, process that information however you want. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you yeah, visit any other hunting places in Africa apart from the Mozambique place? Uh, let's see. On that trip, I don't think I went on others. I mean, you know, talked to a ton of people about the issues so I could get a spectrum. And I mean, look, and some of the people, like some, like some of the people who were, to your point, like, okay with hunting concessions in Africa were vegans. They're like, I'm torn because like, they're like, I am a vegan. I do not want to be complicit in the suffering of animals. But I also can't come up with a better framework than hunting concessions to protect these animals in these places. And if, if it's if if the I mean, because sometimes it's just like if the choice is do we live in a world with rhinos where hunting is legal, hunting of rhinos is legal and regulated, or do we live in a world without rhinos? Like that's really just a value or moral judgment. You know what I mean? Right. And I don't mean that in a way that is directing one answer to the other. Some people might be absolutists and be like. I'd rather not live in a world where we're, I'd, I'd rather not have them around to be killed. And so, um, and a lot of people would be like, I'd rather have them around and whatever. So, you know, I mean, th- that's separate from the fact, like, I think my issue personally with hunting is the, the benefit I derive from the killing of an animal, in my opinion, is does not outweigh that individual animal suffering. That said, you know, ask me at a steakhouse how I can justify what I'm doing. And is the, joy I'm deriving from that steak, you know, commensurate with the suffering of the cow? And the answer is still no. So, you know, I'm full of crap too. You know what I mean? So I think walking paradox with the stuff, you know, what a walking paradox. Walking, I mean, yeah, it's like a walking. I mean, I think we're all like a bit of a walking paradox. I mean, you know, and, and, you know, maybe you've arrived at more certitude about your position than I have. Like, um, I don't know. I just like always on a journey, always looking for more answers. And I was actually really excited to join you on the podcast because I'm always, I always love to have my point of view adjusted, you know? No. And I love your, and that's why I said, I, if I had my druthers and I don't know, you don't know much about blood origins, but blood origins is built. We're a nonprofit that's built to convey the truth about hunting and specifically that the truth. Uh, We're not putting hunting on a pedestal. We're not putting it as the panacea. We're not putting it as the silver bullet for this is the be-all and end-all for wildlife conservation around the world. Hunting certainly has its place in certain places around the world for wildlife conservation. 
uh, it does very well blended with ecotourism. It also doesn't work in certain places because ecotourism is a far better model for wildlife management in those places. Um, we certainly have our bad apples. We certainly have um, a model that is very egocentric in the hunting space. Um, and I'll probably get a bunch of hate for saying that, but that's okay. Um, but we need we're to have all, more all angels out here. Yeah, we have to have conversations and dialogues with people yeah. like you that are outside of our box because really the content that I create for Blood Origins is built for you, Will Staples. It was built for non-hunters. It's not built for the echo chamber. It's not built for the people in the glass house. We just released a uh, film today called Success Untold, which is about a 70,000-acre high-fenced place in the uh, Limpopo province, just about 50 kilometers from the Zim border. Yeah. And... um, it's really a, a story about the people behind the scenes that talk to how wildlife is sustained. Four generations of landowners, professional hunters that have ethics yeah. tied to their profession and their industry standards, trackers that understand that, look, if you don't come and hunt, I don't have a job. Camp operation staffs and, and chefs that say, look, you know, how else am I going to pay for my kids' school? How else am I going to pay for goats and cattle, the things that I value? Because you can't turn this place into an ecotourism destination. Sure, we have a couple of ecotourists come, but I can't turn it into a fully fledged eco restoration because, for instance, the place only takes it takes ninety hunters a year. Okay? Yeah. For the same amount of revenue to be generated by tourists, it would almost have to have nine hundred tourists. And so it's a it's a magnitude of an order of magnitude higher uh, from a from a foot traffic perspective. Yeah not to mention an ecological footprint perspective. Um, and, and it's an incredible system. It's got endangered species on it that they don't hunt, rhinos specifically on the yeah. property that they don't hunt, but they have to dehorn them because then they're not valued any longer, yeah. but they still have to do anti-poaching around them. There's, they reckon there's about, they do aerial surveys, so they, they reckon there's about 5,000 animals on the property. They take 472-odd animals. No, sorry, I lie. 272, 213. Sorry, I get my numbers yeah, wrong. There you go. 213, 4.26%. So it's like, again, it comes down to this sort of value adjustment. Like, are you okay with 4% of the animals being taken that are very selective in their take to sustain 96% more wildlife? Right. Yeah, no, it's tough. And I mean, it's like, I'm sure like a vegan would come at you and say, well, you're, it's the animal hunger games. You know, like, <laughs> you know, like some of them have these, these horrible outcomes and others survive. And I think, I think that's where it's like, yeah, it's, it comes down to the value judgments. Like some people will be absolutist about it. And some will look at the cost benefit analysis and be like, even if you don't hunt and you don't consume animals, you really want those other 90, whatever percent to be alive. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, for me personally, that's, that's probably where I am these days is like, I also feel like habitat It's you know, it's essentially number one. one. Yeah, habitat is number one. one. And when habitat destruction is a one way street, right? It's like with rare exceptions, like, you know, a couple like empty lots in Detroit. It's like once, once a habitat is turned into space for mankind, mm-hmm. done. and so, um, you know, we're, we're not going to live in a world without tigers because, you know, a tiger, was killed at a tiger farm. We're going to live in a world without tigers because there's no habitats for them, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, 
yeah, I mean, I think anything that we can do to stop the bleeding with habitat stuff, I mean, you know, it's like the animal where the animal and drug analogy breaks down for organized crime is that like, we're not like in a world where we're running out of cocaine, you know, it's like, you know, it's like we, these animals are so true. So true. Holy smokes. You know, it's like, you got this thing where it's like, they're going to be gone. And so I think we just have to look at it differently. You know, like with drugs, you fight it on the demand side, you try and, you know, like have campaigns to help people who are, you know, having trouble with you know drugs and things like that. Whereas, you know, if you fight the animal thing on the demand side, you'll be screaming into the wind long after the, the animals are all gone. And so mm -hmm. it's like, I think we're just in desperate, hard decision triage mode when it comes to protecting wildlife. It's yes, we need anti-poaching ops. Yes, we need to set aside land, you know, by hook or by crook. And then the other thing that nobody's doing that drives me fucking crazy is that nobody's going after the syndicates because, uh, you know, these syndicates are politically connected and our trade interests in these regions outweigh our interest in protecting animals. Mm -hmm. Right. So mm -hmm. it's like, you know, the U S government doesn't want to like get kicked out of, you know, the golden triangle, you know, and, and totally hand over the area to the Chinese. Um, you know, so in exchange, we just ignore the fact that there's like tiger and bear farming and all sorts of other horrible shit going on there. Um, you know, and it's like, However inhumane you think the Western version of hunting is, you go to like Southeast Asian and Asian like animal operations and you're like, oh yeah, this is why SARS and COVID came from here. Mm -hmm. Like it's insane. You know, it's like I was, when I was served, um, so like I went to this, the King's Roman Casino in Laos, uh, the one run by Xiao Wei. And when I was there, it's like there's a um, tiger zoo across the street from the casino with like. 70 or 80 tigers they've got like speed beating breeding pens the whole thing you know it's like it's it's very nakedly a um a tiger farm and then you know across the street there's tiger wine for sale etc and if you sort of like scratch a little below the surface ask around maybe have a local fixer hook you up have a good cover story you can end up inside the tiger banquet and so we went what's to, tiger wine so uh there's various uh faces to tiger wine like there's like tiger dick wine where they like take a tiger penis and like float it in rice wine, you know, like, like, you know, and then, okay. it. but, um, if you go into like the hearts of darkness for the animal trafficking world, um, and there's, there's all these like high end restaurants and they say the way the restaurants tend to be set up is on the street out front. There'll be a line of like cages, like bears, monkeys, uh, pangolins, you name it. And you purchase the thing that is then brought in and killed. So you make, you watch the killing happen so that you don't, you're making sure that uh, you're not getting chicken. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in the center of these restaurants, frequently there is like a giant fish tank filled with rice wine and floating in the fish tank is a tiger carcass. And on the end of the fish tank is a spigot. And so you get given a glass and you all go up and you pour off the spigot and some, you did this. Oh yeah, I've got I've got video pictures of the whole thing, and uh, some of them are more sanitary looking, like ones where it's like a tiger skeleton that's kind of laid out in the tiger wine. You go, and others like are just a decomposing, like two year old turning into slurry. How did you not get like barley guts the entire time? I mean, I was like, I was undercover, man. Like I I was like in an area doing a deal for a rhino horn sample 
No, I mean drinking the wine and not getting like freaking jippo guts like the entire well, you know, to the toilet the entire time. Super high octane hooch, right? It's like probably fifty percent, right? You know, and it's like you know, it just tastes like it just tastes like you know Everclear. I mean, it tastes like shit, you know. And like they do it high octane, but you know, you're supposed to be getting the magical powers of the tiger and stuff like that. It's just gross. But um, you know, I mean, but you're in an area where you're doing a deal for a sample of rhino horn. You're trying to maintain your cover story about why you're buying this sample and who you represent and things like that. And then you're being offered tiger wine. And it's like, you do not want to end up on the, you know, all of a sudden smelling like some journalist, mm -hmm. literally journalists are prohibited. And to get into that region, I had to surrender my passport to the warlord's troops like eight hours away. And so I'm like, and there's no internet and no phones or anything in this area. So it's like, you know, you're doing some deal for tiger and rhino parts and you know, yeah, you play along, you do whatever. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, it's pretty pretty hectic uh, when you get into that area. I'm not sure where we started this question, but no, no, it's it's fascinating, dude. It's um, I'll tell you what, I've got your next story. It may not be as as um, it may not be as like hectic tiger wine stuff, but we've uh, we've had a couple of conversations with guys out of India in terms of the uh, human wildlife conflict and tigers and leopards occurring uh, okay. in India. Um. Man-eating leopards. And oh wow! Sheesh! Like you talk about human wildlife conflict. Yeah. Like India is on the battleground of like urban leopards taking out. So in India, there was a, a government state law put in place that you can't kill a feral dog. So there's no dog. You can't kill the dog anymore, and cattle can't be killed either. So you've got all this prey space. You've got this prey base that is like exploding. Oh, wow! And you've got this predator base that is exploding as well. And there are store, there are videos. Like I get sent videos every two or three days of leopards. Like, and I send them to leopard experts down in South Africa, saying, "Look at this leopard." They're like, "That's the biggest leopard I've ever seen." Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Is like, it's very easy, you know, when you're sitting, you know, in your house in LA or whatever, to be like, you know, every life is sacred. And then if you're some like Indian who's like, you know, kids about to get eaten by a leopard, like that's just a different you know, thing. And it's like, you know, it's like, I've talked to vegan and I poaching guys a lot. And to a man, every single one is like, if an animal attacks me, I will kill it. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I've got, I've got shit to do. I've got a life of conservation ahead of me. Like, I don't want to hurt animals, but I'm not like an idiot, you know? Yeah, and but think about it like this, right? The most, India probably is one of the poorest countries on the world. And imagine identifying a man-eating leopard. Just throwing this out here. Identifying a man eating leopard, that leopard could probably cost, would probably fetch $300,000. Yeah. For a hunter to come in and take it out. Yeah. 300000 US to go into an economy that has nothing. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is like, they're super valuable. I mean, I think, you know, I think, you know, in a perfect world, I think we would shut down the syndicates that are doing this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think what, if there's one thing I've just been, trying desperately to impress upon people and i feel a little bit like chicken little with it is that like these it's actually doable because the syndicates that are trafficking animals are also trafficking drugs and women and running casinos and running casinos and trafficking drugs and trafficking women is extraordinarily profitable and animals are just the icing on the cake so if you went into laos and you went to laotian government you're like hey you guys are harboring this dude Xiao Wei. 
He's like public enemy number one in Laos. Keep letting him do all his other stuff, but shut down this animal shit, will you? And they went to Zhao Wei and they said that. He'd be like, animals, what animals? Like, you know, the tigers would be shut down immediately because it's probably 2% of his business. And, you mm-hmm. know, Salen, Salen and Myanmar and all these guys, like these cartels, their core business is not animals. And maybe even even the Viet, I mean, maybe a little bit more of the Vietnamese. Um, but, you know, if the Vietnamese government came down hard on them or like, look, just for right now, shut down this one component to your business, you know, be like telling Pablo Escobar to get rid of his menagerie or something. It's like the dude's not going to draw a line in the sand over that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so mm-hmm. I think that that for me, I just I wish there was more will to pressure. Uh, I, I think it's got to come top down. I don't think this is something where, you know, you have a bunch of candlelight vigils at schools to get rid of like, you know, tiger trafficking and stuff. Like I think it's just like you shut down the people who are doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's only a few major players is the nice thing too, right? Like, and, you know, the militaries in these countries are often complicit. Um, oh yeah, that was where the, uh, the tiger thing was going was that when we were, when we had the tiger banquet in Laos, um, there was that whole uh, tiger zoo. And uh, so we assumed that our tigers were from the zoo across the street and we go and, you know, the chef is showing us the tiger in the freezer that he's going to be serving us. And uh, he goes, this, uh, you know, this, this tiger is a wild caught tiger that you're going to be eating this evening. And um, I look at its teeth and its teeth are like gleaming white, which is just like, if you do any research, you're like, okay, like wild tigers have chipped teeth. Tigers mm-hmm. that eat chicken all day have mm-hmm. teeth. So I'm like, okay, this is clearly a farm tiger. So then we ask our waitress, like, where do these tigers where this tiger that were being served come from and she goes oh there were four laotian like military helicopters that brought these tigers and as soon as they came the tigers had some like withering disease and got like smaller and smaller and smaller until they fell over and died and that's what you're being served (laughs) it's like yeah okay um cool and so i mean i mean i wasn't there to actually eat the tiger we were there to smuggle out the samples um so you know we ended up getting the samples um but it was you're like oh like yeah this is you know people are like you know looking at things like covid and things like that it's like who knows where each individual Mm -hmm. from but if you're in an area where you're treating animals like that and they're all dying these horrible deaths and then you're serving them to people um it seems like a bad idea yeah man it's um I had no idea. I'll say this at the beginning of this conversation. <laughs> I had no idea that uh, this is the rabbit hole that we were going to run down. Um, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Uh, let me ask this because I think I know the answer to this, uh, given what you've just said already. I'll ask this as the last question. Before you started this, did you have a perspective on hunting? And after this, do you have a different perspective on hunting or is it the same? The whole, the podcast or the whole animal journey? Just everything. Okay. Yeah. Generally. I, before I went into it, I didn't have a perspective. I was like, it was something that people around me did when I was little, but you know, it's not something that's in my life now, like golf, right? I grew up, like played some golf, dad played golf. And now it's like, I don't play golf. So I don't really think about it. Um, I think as a result of, the research and going down the rabbit hole and talking to so many people and doing so much firsthand stuff, 
it forced me to have a bunch of sort of, it, it definitely solidified new opinions, but also a lot of questions, you know? And so I have a perspective on it now. And I think I now know, it's a weird way to put it, but I know what I don't know. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I know what my questions are and where I have to make my own value judgments and where I, where I have to choose whether I'm going to live those values or conveniently just be selfish. Um, and I think which is to your, is it, which is to the, the meat example you kept you referring to. Yeah. I mean, like just being honest, like I can't really come up with a, a sound argument for why I should eat meat. Like it's probably better for society if nobody ate meat, like, but I eat meat, you know? And so, I mean, again, like I'm not trying no, to, it's what I, no, it's exactly what I expected your answer to be. Yeah. And like, so yeah, I mean, I guess, I like, didn't want, I actually didn't want you to have this glorified, like I had this, this negative perspective. And now because of what I did, I have this amazing perspective. That would have been great, but knowing who you are and what you've just exp- exp- expressed, it's like, there's a grayness to it. Oh yeah. And if I was like, oh, you know, you kill animals, you're like, you eat, you have plastic bottles, you eat steaks, you do all this stuff. And it's like, you know, if, no matter who you are, there's no, nobody passes the ultimate purity test. And I just think it's like, when people give like celebrities a hard time about flying in a private jet while they're, you know, fighting climate change, it's like, that doesn't get anybody anywhere. Like the celebrities using their platform for good. And yes, they're being a little hypocritical, but it doesn't undermine the argument. And, you know, a hunter kills an animal, but they're trying to protect a lot of, you know, habitat. Like you might disagree with the individual act of the killing of the animal, but I don't know. I mean, no, hundred percent. We're all sort of like, you know, the compass is pointing in the right direction or whatever. It's like, mm-hmm. and we're generally trying take to a step back is what you're saying. Yeah. Look at, it, the, look at the situation, take a couple of steps back and just look at it from a broad lens. Yeah, absolutely. And listen to each other. Like, I, you know, I was, why I was excited to come on with you today is, you know, here, clearly this is something that you're really passionate about. Um, and I obviously from this conversation don't share that like passion for hunting. Um, but you know, I respect where you're coming from and, uh, you know, and it's not like I'm sitting here, you know, shooting down your arguments like clay pigeons or anything. No, it was awesome. I, that's you know, and, and and if you did, and if you if you wanted to, maybe we could do that the next podcast. <laughs> I don't have any ammunition, man. I just only got the research I did. Um, you know, it's funny because like for me, it's also like it's something I'm passionate about, and then you know, it's like you know, you move on to the next project, and you're working with the Inuits on their thing, or you're working on the space race, and. Um, well, when you're done, when you get done to a point with the Inuits, um, give me a holler because we'll have you right. back on. Let's talk about Inuits because there's a phenomenal story there: polar bears, climate change, oh yeah, absolutely. seals, the whole kit and caboodle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a lot to talk about there. I'll actually be heading up with them this coming month, uh, and uh, should be doing a lot of fun firsthand stuff. And so again, it's like you know, love them, love what they're doing, but like, do I want to kill seals? myself it's not really my thing you know so um yeah you're not a seal clubber i'm not it's not yet so you know but uh i'm also like you know i'm only here in california because they crossed the bering land bridge doing everything that they're still doing so you know 100 that's what it is will staples uh amazing conversation man i hope that we stay in touch because uh i thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it well, thanks a lot, Robbie. I had a great time coming on the uh, the podcast with you. I uh, really appreciate uh, you being uh, so open-minded and, uh, you know, hearing, uh, hearing what I say. No worries, buddy. Hey, before we go, actually, let's do this. Let's plug animals. 
Where uh, can yeah. people find animals? Animals is available uh, anywhere you buy books. It's uh, out in hardcover and ebook and audiobook right now. It comes out in paperback this month. Uh, every penny I make goes straight to wildlife charities. So even if you hate it, you saved a pangolin along the way. Um, but uh, yeah, but I would love for people to read it and you know learn about the issue and hopefully people know that when they buy it, they are not buying an agenda. It's not sanctimonious. It is just like a ripping bare knuckle crime story, like traffic or any, or narcos or any of that kind of thing, but set in a world that you probably know nothing about. And the rabbit hole is deep and dark and wild. And uh, I think you'll dig it. Oh, that's awesome, man. I'll put it up. We'll put it in the show notes and we'll put a link and all the rest of it when we drop this podcast. All right. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Robbie. No worries, mate. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. You'd think, with four of us spread out on a tiny island, that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But, as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, a mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.